When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest growing TV brand. It's Purple Daily. All right, hour number two of Purple Daily. Matthew Collar here and uh, joining me in studio. He used to have my job and now works for the Star Tribune, Andrew Kramer. What's up, Andrew? Hey, Matthew. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Andrew, you wrote a really good piece about Irv Smith and the uh, trajectory for a young tight end, which we've been saying on the show is not easy, but you went into great specifics on this. So I wanted to dive into it because in a training camp that has been kind of uninteresting for the most part, the show has been great, by the way, though. Purple Daily has been amazing. It's not my fault. It's their fault. Um, but uh, in, in, a, in a camp that doesn't have a bunch of competitions – Irv Smith is sort of competing against himself. Like, if he can Irv Smith himself to knowing the offense well enough, then he can have a role on this team and be an important piece. And if he can't, then we're going to see a lot of Tyler Conklin. So let me just start with what do you think, um, from talking to a bunch of people about Irv Smith, is the biggest hurdle for him to be a part of the offense? I think it's just the multitude of ways they want to use him. They did, they don't, they're not putting him in the Kyle Rudolph role. They're putting him in more of that F move tight end role where they want him to line up all over the place, whether it's just split out wide, whether it's in the slot, whether it's in line right next to the tackle, or whether it's in the backfield as the fullback. These are all things that you saw like a Red Ellison do back in, you know, uh, Adrian Peterson's running days, uh, except they view Irv as an actual threat as a receiver as opposed to Rhett. And so with Irv, it's just a matter of, you know, learning how to line up. It's, it sounds dumb. Dumb, but it's that simple because of how different uh, the things are that they're asking him to do. Kirk Cousins had a good anecdote the other day where he had said, look, it's as simple as when I say set hut the first time, you need to step off the line of scrimmage because we have a guy motioning to get mm-hmm. onto the line of scrimmage. It's those simple things where otherwise if you don't do it, we're getting penalized, I might get to delay a game, all these different things. So it's not just running around catching a football for him. It's these basics of building up an NFL kind of uh, knowledge base that he didn't have at Alabama. They moved him around, but as he explained to me, it was so much simpler. And they would have one play and he'd have to do this one thing, whereas yeah. now they might have one play and he might have to do five different things for that one concept so it's just i think it's the complexity of the position and frankly you see this out of tight ends across the league uh, only three have eclipsed 600 receiving yards their their rookie season since 2000 
Um, so it just doesn't happen very often. But at the draft, we talked all about how he was going to change the face of the <laughs> offense. And, and, and even at the draft, I went back and did the same research that you're talking about and looked at the other rookie tight ends. And last year, the first drafted rookie tight end was Hayden Hurst, who came away with, I believe, 13 receptions. And they talked about him the same way. Now, Mark Andrews turned out to be better than Hayden Hurst, but it was, but it was yeah. that, oh, well, this guy, you know, he's going to go deep and he's going to change everything. But I think the model that the Vikings should be aiming for is Dallas Goddard, where he had 33 catches last year. He's a contributor. He's playing 30, 40% of the snaps. He comes in, he runs routes. He doesn't do too much blocking, but that's just a positive impact on your offense. Yeah, and the spoils the Eagles have is they've got two move tight ends. They've got Zach Ertz, who can do all the things that you want an NFL modern tight end to do. Kyle Rudolph, as he admitted the other day, is not that. So I think you're right in that sense with Irv Smith. You want to view him as more of that guy who's going to take a year or two to really get involved. Now this year, in year two for Dallas Goddard, that's when the Eagles are excited about him. What can he do now that he has that playbook knowledge down? He can just go out there and play and play fast. And with Irv, to me, it's going to be like, look, they have a log jam at tight end. End, but they know they want Irv to rise to the top. It's just a matter of when. And mm-hmm. so you've still got David Morgan. You've still got Tyler Conklin. You've got guys you think you can rely on in different facets and different ways. Look, David Morgan can play that move tight end role and step in and be a lead blocker for the running backs when he's healthy. So they don't need Irv Smith necessarily to be the face of this changed offense, but he's going to be very much a factor in the long-term vision of what they want to do. Right, because last year there was just nobody else outside no. of Thielen and Diggs yeah. and Kyle Rudolph to some extent, but it felt like... Kirk Cousins didn't know how to use Kyle Rudolph. And now in year two, now this is where I go back and forth, Andrew, because I saw Sam Bradford show up and like a week later start getting the ball to Kyle Rudolph and it worked just fine. Um, Case Keenum never worked with Kyle Rudolph in the first team for an entire camp and then just started throwing in the ball in the red zone. So this whole thing about, well, year two is when you really get the chemistry with your tight end. I question that a little bit, but I also think that Gary Kubiak is going to set this thing up so it's like, you better throw to that tight end. Yeah, and you know Gary Kubiak's done that in the past with tight ends he's had. And so with, with Kirk and Kyle... Um, I wonder how much of it is just the offense under John DeFilippo was geared so much towards those two wideouts that did they have the plays installed or at least at the ready week to week that they wanted to use to get Kyle Rudolph the football. What really dropped off were his red zone targets comparatively. Yep. And that to me is just a trust factor. Kirk needs to take those chances. He needs to take those risks. And I think Kyle will tell you that and probably Kirk as well. He just didn't do that last year. And so you're right. I don't buy into the whole 2019, year two for Kirk, this will unlock Kyle Rudolph. Right. I think Kyle's always been there. It's really up to Kirk to take those chances. Okay, let me circle back to Irv Smith. Uh, first preseason game is coming up at the end of the week. Finally, some new information <laughs> yes, that we get. Um, interviewing Kevin Stefanski at the po- uh, podium today was like, so, you know... How you been? What's going on? Anybody better than you thought now? You know, it's just, it's become like, okay, we're running out of questions. We need actual games. Um, but what do you need to see from Irv? I guess through the entire preseason, but especially with his debut, because I think he's going to be the player that Vikings fans tune in to see with all respect to Garrett Bradbury. I don't know how many people are like, oh, let's take a look at that center on the TV. Uh, they're going to be looking for Irv Smith to make some plays. Yeah, I wouldn't expect Kyle Rudolph to play Thursday night. He's been dealing with a little bit of a, what, my, what Mike Zimmer calls a minor injury. Now we have to see what that actually means for Kyle Rudolph. He could, he be could out. lose a leg and Mike Zimmer <laughs> yes. would say it was a minor injury. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair criticism. And with Kyle, I wouldn't expect him to play 
play Thursdays been held out this week with practices. So Irv is going to step into a prominent role. And what you want to see is you want to see a lack of penalties. You want to see a clean game. You don't want to see any mental mistakes that are obvious to us because if they're obvious to us, that's really bad. Right. He's going to make some mistakes that are obvious to coaches that fans won't even see. But with Irv, you want to see him uh, run block as well. I want to see how he holds up against NFL level uh, defensive linemen, defensive linebackers, all mm-hmm. those things. To me, it's not going to matter if he runs out a 20 yard out and catches a touchdown. Like, yeah, you expect that out of him. I want to see the other facets that are, that are going to make him that well-rounded tight end that they want. And how quickly is he going to latch onto those things mentally, physically with the blocking? Um, and then, of course, you want to see some plays made downfield. But I, it could very well be a, a quiet game for him reception-wise. But if he does these other things correctly, they'll be very excited when they leave. See, I just don't have a whole lot of hope for him for the whole season as a blocker. When I was looking at uh, the PFF scores for rookie tight ends last year in blocking, it was a bloodbath. I oh. mean, it, that, I think three of the bottom four in the entire league were rookies mm. last year. Miami's Mike Gusecki, I believe, had the worst grade of anybody, and he's a receiving tight end who's a little on the lighter side. If you're going into the season thinking, well, Irv better block, I mean, I, I, I think we're in trouble. I'm not blaming you for looking at it to see kind of how far yeah. along is he, but if he's got to be that Rudolph role at any point this season and got to play in a blocking situation, I think that they're going to be in tough with that. This is why the health of David Morgan is so important right now. Now, David Morgan's been held out on the pup list. He dealt with a knee injury that forced him to miss so many games last year at the end of last year. So presumably it's the knee that's still holding him back. Now, when is he going to be ready? Because if Dave, David Morgan's the best run blocker they've got in that room, yep. and he can easily step up and be that Kyle Rudolph or be that number two guy in lieu of Irv Smith not being able to do it as rookie year like you said so with and that would take the pressure off Irv to not have to do it if, if David can't go out there they're going to put Irv in some tough spots yeah. that you're really going to see those rookie lumps so you're right I, I wouldn't set the expectations too high but hey I just want to look in his first game and see how comfortable he is if he gets blown up then you might know it might be a long year for him two-part question for you Andrew talking with Andrew Kramer of the Star Tribune wrote a great piece about Irv Smith uh, in the strib so, um, number one is, are you okay with the nickname Conk for Tyler Conklin? <laughs> okay, uh, to me, it's very dangerous to say on radio, and I just want to say it is C-O-N-K, that is Conk. I like how you they, enunciate. Yes, yeah. thank you, that they have been... It's like when you say uh, someone has a bulging disc, like you better be careful with that one and say it slow. There was somebody um, on ESPN that got in trouble with that one. Steve not, Levy. That's right. Yeah, and uh, it's it's not the first time, but Steve Levy, fam- I believe it was about Mike Mamula. Remember him? Yes. He had a bulging something else that sounds like disc. Anyway, so are you buying that Conk, Tyler Conklin, um, can have an actual role in this offense. Mike Zimmer said he did, and he has looked really good in camp. Tyler's another one of those, and I'm call not gonna, I'm not going to call him Conk. We're not on that level yet, me and Tyler. <laughs> but Tyler's another one of those receiving tight ends that you wonder, can he be that all-around guy? He, he wasn't a great blocker. He was mainly split out wide. I talked to him for this story, too, but he just didn't, didn't make the final cut, Conk did. But um, he said that basically this year he's been asked to do more inline stuff, be that all-around guy, and he's going to have that learning curve similar to Irv Smith of Physically, can he do it? So to me, no, I don't think he's a number two tight end. I, I think he's a number three and a nice receiving option. I think he's somebody they'll put out there in kind of receiving packages mm-hmm. if Irv Smith is not healthy or able to go. So to me, no, I think this is going to be a Kyle Rudolph, David Morgan offense, and then does Irv Smith jump up into that group? 
you think it's a good idea to do the multiple tight end thing? You know, it seems like there's sort of a um, parting of the seas when it comes to offensive philosophy. There's, okay, we're going to throw out three or four wide receivers. For some teams, the Rams always use three wide receivers on literally every snap. And their philosophy is, look, if we look the same all the time, then it's going to be hard for you to figure out what we're doing. And that has clearly had a lot of success, especially in the run game for them. They're one of the few teams that actually it's a good idea to run because you can get five and a half yards to carry with nobody in the box because they've spread out their receivers whereas the Vikings are saying no no we're going to bring in the big people we're going to try and get you to put an extra linebacker or if you have a nickel corner then we're going to plow him over in the run game Uh, I think it's really interesting that we're seeing this sort of dichotomy among offensive philosophies it is quite a different shift and one the Vikings that when, when they made that pivot it was interesting to me because they've got probably the best receiving duo in the NFL. And so for you to then pivot away from being more of a spread offense like the Vikings were doing last year under John Filippo, because, look, the Vikings could run the ball when they when they tried to. I mean, that Patriots game week 13 last year, Dalvin Cook went off. Mm-hmm. The crime was that they just didn't give him the ball more out of the spread offense. And so to me it wasn't necessarily they couldn't do it. It was just the personnel problems up front. So now with the Vikings shifting, totally shifting under Gary Kubiak to this heavy personnel it's going to be a matter of can those guys run block? Can the mm-hmm. offensive line run block? Is Pat Elfline going to be better this year than he was last year? Is, is uh, Riley Reef going to be able to hold up for a full season? Are the tight ends going to be healthy enough like David Morgan, like Kyle Rudolph, mm-hmm. to be healthy and run blocking? Those are all big question marks and ones mm-hmm. that we have not been given a reason for much optimism in the past to expect that this year. Is Dalvin Cook going to remain healthy? That's another huge question mark. So to me, it comes down to the health because right now the starters, they've got the personnel to do it. But I, I have massive questions about their depth to hold up with a heavy personnel offense. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And if you have to go to using more wide receivers in certain situations, because this is yeah. this is great. But Kyle Rudolph said something to us uh, that was interesting the other day. He said, as long as we're in the right situations. Well, last year they weren't that often. And when you have a quarterback who gets sacked a lot, mm-hmm. you get to third and long. There's no play action third and long. There's no multiple tight ends third and long. you got to go out and throw the football. And this is something that they did not do last year and I think was the main cause for them being 19th in scoring. Yeah, and there aren't many plays an offensive coordinator can call for third and 15 that are like on schedule ready to be a completion for 16 yards. That doesn't happen. Like That's not how the NFL works because of how long you need to hold the ball and hold up in pass protection. And the Vikings didn't have that in their O-line. And frankly, they didn't have that in Kirk Cousins. He didn't make a lot of great critical decisions on those mm-hmm. difficult third and long plays. And he yep. talked about it this offseason saying, I need to be better in third and medium, third and long. And that's where you really want to see the quarterback kind of in the offense feel comfortable to make plays down the field. Yep. That comes from pass protection. That just comes from comfort in the offense. So I question that as well. And being in the right situations, are they going to be, is that running game going to keep them on schedule because Kirk hasn't been able to? And if you ever use uh, our friend Pro Football Reference to look at the best third and long passers, it's all the best players. I mean, you could just put them rank quarterbacks by order mm-hmm. for it's you know Tom Brady and it's Ben Roethlisberger and it's all the quarterbacks who win are great on those third downs. And uh, I know people get annoyed with me bringing this up, but Teddy Bridgewater was great in those situations because he had anticipation, accuracy, and pocket presence. And the anticipation and the pocket presence Kirk can be short on. So this offensive philosophy, I do believe it's going to be better, and I do believe it's going to do the things that they've said, but whether they win or lose or win 11 games or 8 games probably comes down to, does he make some of those big-time throws? And the only 
difference that there might be from Cousins that we've seen in practice, but we'll wait and see if we if it's in the games, is throwing the ball up to Thielen and Diggs. Just throw it up in the air and let them make a play. Will he actually do that on a third and eight? Yeah, that's that's the big question mark with him. To me, though, I think ideally Cousins doesn't even want to be in that third and eight. He wants the running game to keep him on schedule, get into a third and short, make the defense guess what you're going to do, and then yep. somebody springs open on a short pass. So can those short passes, can the running game keep them on schedule? And frankly, when they get into the red zone in that condensed area, can they do better? Because they weren't good last year. Yeah, to me, that's a it's a big ask to always be in third and short, it right? Is. It to, is. to try and drive and down the field like that. It's very nice to have that quarterback who gets you out of it, but that's just it's such a, a rare thing in today's NFL like five teams like you mentioned the top guys have that all right before we uh wrap up the segment Andrew I I read in the athletic that the Vikings are giving uh getting the best odds from their analyst whatever one of 10,000 people that they have covering (laughs) sports for the athletic but they they ranked the teams that missed the playoffs last year and put the Vikings as number one to be a team that bounces back and gets in the playoffs uh a would you rank the Vikings as the most likely team and who else is interesting to you that missed the playoffs last year they're right up there i mean they're right up there when you look at the most talented teams to be left out of the playoffs last year the vikings easily can make the case for being number one it's it's which isn't a great uh honor very dubious honor but (laughs) point being in that this is a very talented team they've got the pieces in, in place to do it as brett Favre would say um so point being with the vikings is i would put them up there but then you stack them up against a team like for instance the 49ers who were ravaged by injuries last year and might mm-hmm. be viewed as one of these bad teams in a tough division but they've also got the talent to turn things around especially with all the, the picks they put into their defensive line look at carolina look at atlanta very two established veteran offenses that really just need health defensively as well yeah. to make their well-rounded teams so i think there are t- other teams out there that can make that jump the way that the Vikings are hoping to do in 2019. Um, I, I think the Vikings have just as good a case as any, though. The problem is you're in a Division two with the Packers, who could also be in this argument as a team with Aaron Rodgers always dangerous to get to that next level. Sure, and I keep thinking that if the Packers' defense turns a corner, mm. they started halfway last year, but if they really <laughs> turn the corner... Then, but if you're a Packers fan, you know you've been saying that for the last oh, five yes, years. Ever yes. since the Super Bowl, you're like, ah, this defense can just turn the corner. I am telling people, though. <laughs> If you don't learn this name now, you will in week two. Zadarius Smith is a monster. You don't know him because he played for Baltimore, and he's a guy that got a ton of pressures, but not like 20 sacks. You will know his name. The guy is a beast. Yeah, and the Packers have really stockpiled those guys. Preston yep. Smith as well was really good in Washington. And Gar- Rashad Gary, their rookie, mm-hmm. should be interesting. All right, last thing. Who, goes, uh, who has the best chance of going worst to first in the NFC? New York, Arizona, Detroit, or Tampa Bay? Oh, man. Wow. I would say Tampa Bay only because I have zero faith in Detroit. And New York is in the Giants, right? Obviously. Uh, Yeah, that would be the Um, football Giants. Obviously the football Giants. I have no faith in that organization right now, Dave Football Gettleman. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I would say the Tampa Bay only because of Bruce Arians. I'm a big believer in him getting more out of uh, Jameis Winston, a little bit more efficient Jameis Winston. And God, they're loaded with weapons from Mike Evans to O.J. Howard. I think they could be really good on offense. Their defense has always been the question mark, though. Uh, we'll see on Arizona. I'm kind of uh, fascinated. I, I want to watch like every game on tape back. Seriously, I do, but I just I don't think rookie quarterback, rookie head coach. Yeah. I don't I don't buy it in 2019. All right, thanks uh, for your time, Andrew. If you missed it, make sure you go check out his piece on Irv Smith. Very good stuff. Uh, we'll take a quick break. We will come right back and we'll talk from Pro Football Focus. To Eric Eager, we'll check in with him, get his opinion as well on whether the Vikings are the most likely. 
Join me and Dan Terhar this Saturday for Scornor's coverage of Minnesota United and FC Dallas. Pre-game at 6.30 p.m. with kick at 7 right here on Score North on AM 1500, scorenorth.com, and the free Score North mobile app. Welcome back to Purple Daily. Matthew Collar with you as always. And uh, thanks to Andrew Kramer for stopping by for a few minutes to talk tight ends. And I want to continue that conversation as well as dive into whether the Vikings are indeed the most likely team who missed the playoffs last year to miss it this year with my friend Eric Eager from Pro Football Focus. Do you guys miss me down there in Cincinnati, Eric? We do. You you brought a... a you know, some life to uh, this uh, this part of northern Kentucky. <laughs> Light and energy. You know, I'm really glad that you and I got Yasil Puig bobbleheads, and in the, on the bobblehead, he is riding a horse, and then he was traded. So it's almost like they were telling us what was going to happen. He's going to get on his horse and ride to Cleveland. It was really unreal. That um, I just can't. Re- I just can't get over the fact that that game was only six innings in after your, you know, two and a half hour time limit. It seems like baseball is like passing me by. Yeah, I do have a, a rule where I will not stay at a baseball game past two and a half hours. There are 162 of them. Nothing means enough to me to stay past two and a half hours at a baseball stadium. I enjoy it, the beautiful weather, the food. We had a great time at the Reds game, but it was like, all right, it's about 9.30, time to go. Um, so that, that, is, that is my rule. Feel free to use it. Um, okay, Eric, let's talk about tight ends. That, that's, a, that's enough Cincinnati Red talk for now, okay? Yep, yep, yep. Um, <laughs> uh, we were just talking with uh, Andrew Kramer about Irv Smith and the steep climb for rookie tight ends. What can you tell me about rookie tight ends in the NFL and how likely it is that Irv Smith – um, will have a positive impact on the Vikings offense as they hoped when they drafted him. Well, you know, the tight end position is really difficult. I mean, we've seen more examples of, you know, uh, a high draft pick being developed for another team uh, at the position than actually his own team. I mean, the Rob Gronkowski's of the world, uh, the Travis Kelsey's of the world, they're four, few and far between. I mean, you're more likely to see somebody like uh, Eric Ebron, who was a top draft pick for Detroit, end up playing well by the time you know he goes somewhere uh, and they use him properly in Indianapolis. You saw the same thing with Jared Cook after he left uh, Tennessee, went to St. Louis, and then eventually uh, Green Bay, Oakland, and now New Orleans. Hmm. Like He's a fully developed tight end, um, but it took him a while uh, to, to really learn the position. Um, some guys, you know, O.J. Howard, um, you know, wasn't deployed particularly well in Tampa Bay. Hopefully uh, he is, you know, in Bruce Arians' offense now. Uh, better, you know, uh, deployed, you know, just kind of you look across the league, it's just a tough position to learn because you have a few things that go against you. A, it's the transition from college to pro, which is just a different game. Everybody's more talented than they were in college. It's the physicality aspect of it. It's a difficult position physically to run routes, but also to block. And then it's the mental aspect of it where you have to learn the entire route tree and you have to learn all the things the offensive line knows because as people, you know, who play football, you know, sort of will tell you, you know, it's when you're when you're playing the tight end right, for example, you have to know what the left guard is doing so that you know the reason for the block that you're making because right. there, there's other positions that change and you have to know why, you know, the people next to you are doing what they're doing. So it's a really tough thing, whereas, you know, a rookie wide receiver just really has to know how to run routes. A rookie guard just has to know all the blocking schemes. A tight end sort of has to know both in addition to 
with the fact that, you know, defensive linemen are stronger than they were, uh, you know, in college. Linebackers are faster than they were in college, and safeties are bigger than they were in college. So it's just a tough transition. So is there anything numbers-wise that you can look at? Because Pro Football Focus obviously has a ton of data um, that points to how guys are going to transition into the league. I mean, you and I have talked about offensive linemen before, and if you're a great pass blocker in college, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to be a good pass blocker in the NFL. Is there anything like that with tight ends? I mean, usually, usually, and almost for every position, but this this range true in tight end, you have to have played the position that you're going to play in the pro level. And what I mean by position is, you know, David Morgan has graded extremely well for us, and he graded extremely well uh, at one of the directional Texas schools at doing exactly what he's done. He's done, which is block uh, and you know, play in line, move a little bit. Irv Smith has you know had had has some experience sort of as an inline tight end. He's mostly been a move guy. If they have him doing that, I think his odds are better, uh, you know, than than if he's sort of asked to play in line. Maybe Kyle Rudolph gets injured and he has to play that tight end one role. Uh, the numbers would suggest that sort of moving position to position would would, would make you struggle. Um, I think you know one of them, and this isn't really our grades, but it's just speed. Uh, I know my colleague Mike Renner has said you know when a tight end that can sort of you know press safeties in the secondary is really valuable. And Irv Smith certainly has it. He has, you know, pretty good athleticism. So, um, you know, that bodes well. But again, it's all it all amounts to like, you know, none of these guys coming out. I save like George Kittle, T.J. Hawkinson, um, you know, have really played that traditional NFL tight end role, and they mm-hmm. did at Iowa. Um, you know, save that. Like, if you don't ask him to play that role, he has a better chance of, you know, doing well at whatever role you do play him at. Well, Irv Smith will definitely be number one on the list. Um, sorry to spoil it for scorenorth.com fans when I make my 10 most interesting players for the first preseason game. Um, before I ask you, Eric, about teams bouncing back from missing the playoffs last year, um, preseason, does it mean stuff? You guys keep preseason grades, and I will definitely look at them, but what do they mean? I mean, it, it, should people be watching this closely for indicators of how this is going to go, or does it not mean a thing? Well, I would say on the aggregate, it doesn't mean much. If you play, you know, in terms of, like, if the Vikings grade well in pass protection in the preseason, um, you know, it does. the correlation isn't terribly high with, with uh, the regular season, I think the reason is pretty obvious. It's like some teams, like the Rams and the Bears, don't play any of their players in the preseason, uh, whereas some teams will play their players a significant amount in the preseason. So there's just sort of that mismatch. I think at the individual player level, we found some evidence that, you know, the players on the fringes that grade well do better uh, in the NFL, and that I think makes sense. But, you know, you always have to, you know, all these things, even the regular season grade require context. And so if you're a player... Uh, for example, who's, you know, a left guard in the third team and you're getting your butt whooped by third team defensive ends, um, that, yeah, it's not good, right? And you right. don't want to see that happen. Or, you know, if you're a TJ Clemmings for the Vikings and you're starting, uh, at right tackle in the preseason and you're playing into the third quarter and you're still getting beat and you're grading poorly, that's bad as well. If you're Matt Schaub for the Falcons the other night and you can't complete passes against 13 <laughs> defenses, uh, that doesn't bode well in terms of your ability as a backup quarterback for Atlanta. So that's kind of the, um, you know, that that's where you can really glean a lot of that context from. Um, and and we, I've certainly found, you know, some insights from them over the years. Okay, is there any way, when you talk about the backup quarterback position, because Courtney and I were talking about this earlier, is there any way to figure out if a guy can win half his games 
I, I mean, I don't know through the preseason or any other way, when you're talking about somebody who hasn't had a lot of experience, like Sean Mannion, that's the big question. If he had to play four games, could he win two of them? And he's looked pretty good in camp. He's looked certainly better than Kyle Sloter and Jake Browning. Oh, but is I, that blaspheme? But, blaspheme right there? Is that what? Blasphemy. Oh. Better than <laughs> oh, yeah, right, I know. Um, Sloter was great last year against the fourth-teamers. But anyway, he has not been, for the second straight year, anywhere close to the actual backup quarterback. But with Trevor Simeon, Eric, we knew. Like, if he comes in, he could probably win half his games because when he had a great Denver team, that's what he did. So... Can Sean Mannion do that? How do we figure that out? Is there anything we can watch for in preseason to know whether he could go two and two in a four game stretch? Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough, right? Because even a couple of years ago, we saw with Case Keenum, like he struggled mightily in practice, and he comes out in a preseason game and he looks like he has command of the offense. Matt Castle was the same thing when he was the Vikings backup uh, in 2013. Um, you know, Matt Schaub, not so much the other night uh, for the Falcons. I think. Ultimately, it's less about dominating fourth stringers as it is about commanding, uh, you know, a first string offense uh, against another first string defense, right? And like we don't get to see that so much in the preseason. Um, but then a step down from that would be simply picking up first down uh, in the, you know, in the preseason against second stringers when you're playing with second stringers. Or, you know, in the case I remember our friend Sage Rosenfels, right, in 2009, 2010 right before he got traded to the Giants, had to start a preseason game against St. Louis and basically like, set the preseason record for most passing yards. <laughs> so stuff like that, you know, you sort of like, you look at that and you say, okay, well, that guy clearly has command of the offense. He's clearly, you know, playing against inferior competition. That's kind of what I want to see for my backup. If it's if you have to make a lot of qualified excuses for a guy, then I, I think it's tough to sort of project him as a, a winnable backup. If you're saying, okay, you know, uh, Sean Mannion looked terrible, but the offensive line was garbage in front of him. He looked terrible, but the receivers uh, weren't getting open for him. Like that's a bad sign if yeah. the guy is an NFL quality backup, and and you sort of see that in some of the data, like how accurate he is after throwing out drops, how quick he's getting rid of the football, how many sacks he's taking that are his fault. All that kind of stuff sort of like emanates from the data with respect to quarterbacks. Uh, in the preseason. Well, and when you look at how Case Keenum played in those preseason games, he was fantastic. I mean, he, mm -hmm. he came in and it was very clear that Taylor Heineke wasn't winning that job because Keenum looked like total command of the offense and he made plays and led them down the field. And so, yes, we were all stunned that he went 13 and three or finished that they finished 13 and three with him as the quarterback, but we had kind of seen it a little like, okay, all right, this guy does have some of those NFL skills and is a little bit of a gamer and can roll out and make a play. And those were all the things that we saw uh, in the regular season. So it will be worth watching Sean Mannion just from that perspective, even though, Eric, I have vowed not to cover the backup quarterback competition because if it's a season-long injury to Kirk Cousins, the season is over. But, um, but if it's four games, you want to know which guy can win two of them. And uh, I guess we will watch Sean Mannion a little closer for that reason. Now, uh, The Athletic wrote, Eric, that the Vikings are the most probable team to bounce back from missing the playoffs last year. They ranked all the teams that missed the postseason, and they put the Vikings number one to make the playoffs this year. Do you agree with that sentiment? 
Uh, you know, I think they're among the top teams, but I have them at about, you know, mid 40, you know, low 40% to mid 40% to make the playoffs. Um, and the team that I actually really do like in that slot is Pittsburgh. I think Pittsburgh is a team that's probably got over, and actually this is on Pro Football Focus, uh, PFF.com, uh, right now, where if you look at the Steelers, they're a pretty good bet to make the playoffs. Um, and, you know, I would say that, that they're probably the most likely team that didn't make the playoffs to make the playoffs uh, next season. They had, you know, they had that stretch where they went three and four. They lost by three to New Orleans, lost by three to Los Angeles. Uh, all their losses last season, except for I believe one, was by basically uh, one score or less. So they're a team that has all that regression going for it. And then I think if you look at, you know, the Bears are certainly a team to be reckoned with in the NFC North. I think Detroit's underrated. I think, yeah, Green Bay will probably have a little bit of a rebound. I think that's actually weirdly a tougher slate than what Pittsburgh has, which is Cincinnati who's banged up with a new coach. I think Baltimore is going to take a step back as they sort of figure out what they want Lamar Jackson to be and how that how many losses they had on their defense. Uh, and then Cleveland, I think people are going to find out that Cleveland's path from zero to seven wins was a lot easier than their path from seven wins, so let's say ten, uh, and win that division. So I think Pittsburgh is probably the most likely team of teams didn't make the playoffs last year to make the playoffs this year. So I keep looking, and the division, yes, and we've talked a lot about that. You know, We talked to Lauren Cox yesterday about the Bears specifically and their, their chances to return to the top of the North. But the division I keep looking at for teams that could make it challenging for the Vikings to bounce back if the Vikings don't win the division is in the South. I mean, Atlanta yep. should be much better. And you have to start out the season right with Atlanta coming here. I would still pick the Vikings because of the home field advantage, but that's not an easy matchup. And that's a team that I think they're talking in Atlanta like we're talking here. Like, okay, it was a big disappointment last year, but we fixed all the issues, and then we've got a good chance to go back to the playoffs i look at them as a very dangerous team here well and they have a much better quarterback in matt ryan who i think is one of the more underrated players in the league and you're right i mean that division even like you look at i think one of the two tampa bay or carolina is going to be good at least uh so you have to contend with probably one of those and then atlanta i think i have atlanta similarly handicapped to minnesota in terms of wins and, and making the playoffs uh, you know and they're they made upgrades to their defense, both personnel-wise, but they also got Dan Quinn out from not calling the plays back to calling the plays. That's an important one. And if you look at the NFC West, right, uh, San Francisco gets their quarterback back. Um, you know, uh, Seattle's force we reckon with Russell Wilson, and then uh, L.A., of course. And then, you know, this is really the tragic thing about the Vikings missing the playoffs last year was that the whole NFC was right for teams to, you know, to, for a team to make the sixth seed. A team with a backup quarterback made it ahead of them that uh, Philadelphia team is going to have their starting quarterback back. So they're going to be a force we reckon with along with uh, the Dallas Cowboys in the NFC. East. So it's just a really tough uh, NFC to sort of go through. The AFC is getting better, certainly with the Indianapolis and the Kansas cities of the world emerging to uh, compete with new England. But I think there's still like a better path for Pittsburgh. Uh, to make the playoffs uh, after missing last season. All right, Andrew Kramer and I were discussing earlier the team with the best chance to go worst to first. Now, we only looked at the NFC, and we kind of said, uh, Tampa, I guess, but uh, how about the entire NFL? Is there a team that stands out to you that you would say could go worst to first in their division? Uh, that's a that's a really good question. Um, so, man, because they're – the worst teams are all sort of buried, kind of. But um, one team that might might surprise, and I believe I believe they finished last last year, is Jacksonville. Yeah, because you have correct. the aforementioned Nick Foles, 
uh, and you have a really good defense. I believe ESPN had him top in FBI. I think we probably have him uh, top five. Uh, you have, you know, an offense that really regressed last season. I think Nick Foles stabilizes it a little bit. So I think Jacksonville, in sort of a, a division where Indianapolis is really good but still not perfect, I think that they could probably emerge and, and have a shot at least to make the playoffs and, and compete for that division. Yeah, um, the other ones, you, you just can't really see getting all the way to first. I mean, Cincinnati, to yes. me, has no shot, especially with A.J. Green suffering some injuries. Oakland getting to first would be incredibly difficult. New York, I mean, it's just New England's going to be first there. Tampa Bay, you've been high on. And, uh, you know, I mean, if you were looking at this from a, a the, not the perspective of looking really closely at uh, the NFC North, as we do, you might say Detroit. Detroit, Detroit was just not that far away. I mean, they, they, they go 6-10 and ten. the year before. They're, what, 9-7? and seven. Um, they still have their same quarterback who's about a 500 quarterback, but now with a better defense. And that is the team that I feel like, Eric, when we talk about all the scenarios with the Vikings, the one that would be the biggest maybe punch in the face would be if the Vikings lost two games to Detroit and that was the difference maker, right? Because you'd feel like, really, it was Detroit. Um, but that's how it was in 2016. And to me, there exists that possibility as long as Matt Patricia doesn't lose the entire team. Well, you bring up the, the the biggest point here. I think if Jim Caldwell was still the head coach of the Detroit Lions, they would be in a much better situation in terms of yeah. probability to win. I mean, the fact that Jim Caldwell was able to get Detroit Lions three winning seasons out of four uh, in his tenure and still got fired is a remarkable indictment on uh, how, how folks are doing it in Detroit. I will say, though, that personnel-wise, they have a chance to be a better defense than the Vikings. I'm not saying that they will be or that they'll be coached into doing it, because I think Zimmer is far superior as a play caller. But that defense is pretty solid with the Darius Slays. they got Justin Coleman to play the slot. Uh, their defensive front is already better than the Vikings, and so if they get somebody like Gerard Davis to emerge as a linebacker uh, in, I believe, his third season, that could be a pretty lights-out defense. And then, as you said, if they're healthy at receiver, uh, you know they kind of traded Matthew Stafford's best receiver out from under him last year. Uh, they, they could be, a, you know, and with TJ Hawkinson, they could be somebody to contend with in the North. I, I, when we were hosting the show a couple weeks ago, I did say that, like, them betting on them to win the NFC North at plus money is a, is a pretty solid, uh, you know, long shot to take. As always, great stuff, Eric. And uh, I have an announcement to make uh, that we've agreed to, I'm going to try to use, like, Schefter terms. Like, the two sides have come to an agreement on uh, pro football focus personalities, yourself, Sam Monson, Mike Renner, um, probably other people, uh, coming on every single week. We will have some PFF presence on the station. So we, uh, we've worked that out, and for the show, we'll have somebody on each week from PFF. I'm very excited about that. Yeah, that's excellent stuff. It'll be a it'll be a fun season. It's only you know four or five weeks away, so I'm we're getting really excited there. for that. All right, follow him at pff underscore Eric on Twitter at pff.com, The PFF Forecast podcast and probably anything else just with the letters P. Three forty-five here at Score North. Time for the Score North download. Jonathan here with this download that's brought to you by My Pillow. Friday is almost here, and that means Vikings preseason game number one is almost here, as well as the Vikings will kick it off against the New Orleans Saints down in New Orleans this Friday. It means football's back for the Vikings and for Vikings fans everywhere. Also, coming back 
early this year, earlier than normal, preseason Vikings event line for the first time ever. We'll be taking all your calls immediately after that game ends, so you can give us all your thoughts on the wide receiver, the third wide receiver battle, all the tight ends we've been talking about all hour long. Give us your thoughts immediately after the game ends. You can call in to Vikings Ventline right here on Score North immediately after that game ends. Another way you can connect with us or listen to stuff that we're talking about, Minnesota Sports Rewind. It's where Score North goes back in time and dives deep into some of the most prominent moments in Minnesota sports history, including Twins and Tigers Game 163, Twins and A's from the 2002 ALDS, Kevin Love's 30-30 and 30 game, and Kevin Garnett's dominating Game 7 against Sacramento are some of the episodes we have up there right now. It's called Minnesota Sports Rewind on scorenorth.com, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you find podcasts. That's been your Score North download. Now back to the final segment today of Purple Daily. All right, one final segment of Purple Daily. If you missed any of the show, just a reminder, go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And also, check out our Viking coverage at scorenorth.com. He was walking by, so I pulled him into the studio for a final segment here, Declan Goff. Because I wanted to ask you, Declan, um, you're often called upon to produce things like post-game shows and things like that. And this year, we are doing preseason post-game shows, which oh, will yeah. be very exciting. And I wanted to ask you if you have favorite preseason memories, because I have a few that I want to throw out there before we get to starting the preseason. And we're going to have like full epic preview on Friday with Courtney Crone and I. But the preseason is a wonderful time in our lives. Oh, it's the best. I mean, I remember, too, just like 10 years ago, right before they got Farf and John David Booty. Because I had I had this like a brief obsession with JDB and when they when the Vikings <laughs> drafted him, so so he you were had, obsessed with the booty. Yeah, I was obsessed with the booty. And John David Booty uh, got to play some preseason games, and unfortunately, he was a casualty because of Brett Favre. But that's an okay casualty. Uh, but yeah, preseason football, it, it it's football, man. We've been deprived of it for six eight months, and and now it, it's finally at least time to put some pads on. Uh, there's no question to me that the best part of preseason is the random quarterbacks who oh, end up. Yeah. Playing that you remember, even bringing up John David Booty is great. There is the McLeod Bethel Thompson era. You have the Taylor Heineke era here that got people excited, and then someday we'll be all reminiscing about the Kyle Sloter era and all the great things that he did in the preseason. Um, personally, since I've been here, I think that the Caleb Jones game, oh, where he had something like nine catches for a hundred and something yards from Mitch Leidner will probably be the game that always stands out in my mind from here. Uh, aside from the game where Joel Stave had to play right after Teddy got hurt, so Sean Hill couldn't play in that fourth preseason oh. game. C.J. Ham went crazy in that one with, I think, running for a couple touchdowns. And Jared Goff started against the Vikings in the fourth preseason game and was awful, and Case Keenum came in and was better, I think, right. is, is what happened. So the, the preseason just offers us so many great random quarterback memories and for some reason people will latch on to these random quarterbacks and be like you know Slaughter could have made it you know? yeah this <laughs> is one of my favorite things isn't it uh, was it 538 yesterday that said sage rosenfels was the greatest preseason passer of yes. all time yes and <laughs> sage called me right after it was like i'm basically tom brady of the yeah. preseason I'm like great sage thank you it's extremely on brand for sage <laughs> yes. extremely on brand for sage. yes and I would argue that when you look at Sage's statistics that he has a good case for, like, maybe he should have gotten more starts yeah. in his career, um, but it didn't work out, and he went 6-6. Six and six. But a, a preseason dominator, yeah. Sage Rosenfels, 
I uh, so on the phone I was calling him Tom. I was like, "Okay, hey, Tom. Tom. Okay, Mr. Brady. Pump the ego Pre- a little the bit. preseason Brady. We'll talk to you soon. I can't wait to get his uh, response to that next time he's on the show. Um, but but what other than that? Like the, the random quarterbacks are great. How right. about last year in the fourth preseason game? Sloter plays the whole thing, and the Vikings are playing maybe Tennessee. It gets to the end of the game, and they need the victory formation, and they bring out P- Peter Pujols, who had practiced all year with them, and then he comes out and like kneels twice, and that's it. Like you couldn't have given Peter Pujols a few more snaps. Poor guy. Come on, you know, he couldn't work yeah. for you. You know that that's what he all he wanted to do. Is that was his one shining moment to go out in the pre season and, and you can't even give him the kneel no I, I totally get with and with sage i remember in high school uh right before the season started when he was traded to the giants i believe in was it 2010 i believe or, and i remember former vikings intern walt share and i who went to the same high school we were we were at, we had connected to wi-fi and the football bleachers and i remember walt being absolutely crushed that they traded sage rosenfels <laughs> to the giants it was it was amazing to see uh someone be so upset over a backup quarterback getting moved like that, but if it's anyone, it is Sage. I mean, because because Sage is, uh, is is the best backup <laughs> QB I think in, in 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 history. But I remember, you know, there were some other great preseason moments. Obviously, uh, Teddy Bridgewater. It seemed every t- I was just so excited to watch him play, whether it was regular season or preseason. And there was multiple times where he went out there. Um, and, and had some memorable moments. So that was really cool to see. His bomb to Charles Johnson, oh, his yeah. throw against, I think it was the Chargers, uh, to digs across the field that was like, oh, okay, Bridgewater's taking the next step. And uh, this will be a Teddy Bridgewater revenge game, I think. Yeah. Right? Um, th- they're going down to New Orleans. Bridgewater is going to play. He might actually start. I would actually assume that he would against the Vikings, and Drew Brees has no reason to play yeah. in preseason football at all. But even if he doesn't start, he's going to be in quite a bit. And Declan, it's just going to make me think about how this will this will always be the one that when Mike Zimmer goes to bed at night, one of the things he thinks about is what if we kept Teddy or yeah. what if Teddy didn't get hurt? And I can't imagine what's going to be running through his head to be playing his team against the quarterback he said he never wanted to get rid of. He said he wanted Bridgewater for his whole career. And now he's playing for New Orleans and maybe it won't be long before he's their franchise quarterback. Exactly. And you know, everyone has a love where the one that got away where you're trying to stay where you're trying to go to bed at night and you and you're thinking about him or her. And with Teddy, that's that's the one with Mike Zimmer. The guy, let's be honest, has a strong feeling towards quarterbacks and kickers. And when you hear him say and praise Teddy Bridgewater, you know how special of a guy this mm-hmm. is. And Teddy, who just had uh, the one-year deal, I guess, in, in New Orleans, gets paid, what, he's getting paid $7, 8000000 million this yep. year. I he's believe he's the highest paid backup. The highest paid. What is that? And, everyone, and with the 13 touchdowns a season, he didn't do this, 14, he didn't yep. do that. And what does it say that Sean Payton, one of the best offensive minds of the last 15 years, says, I, I, don't, I have my backup plan. His name's Teddy Bridgewater, and we're paying him more than some starting quarterbacks right now in the NFL. Yeah, and it seems like their entire succession plan is to go to Bridgewater. The reviews from training camp from the reporters there is that he's looked like a starting NFL quarterback again. And, you know, I I think it's got to be mixed feelings from a lot of the Vikings fan base. I mean, this isn't just Mike Zimmer feeling this way. I think that he channels the way that 95% of the fan base felt about Teddy Bridgewater, that he was going to be their guy for a very long time. And it was a tragedy when he went down and it appeared that he would never play again. So it's got to be mixed feelings to see him out there because he's in an NFL uniform. He's going to play in this game and he played in week 
17 last year and didn't put up big stats, but did some Teddy Bridgewater things like you'd expect. Moved around a little bit and didn't look like he was having any leg issues. So, you know, you you have that. That's great to see a guy whose career was almost over. You wouldn't wish that on anyone, whether you liked him or not. But then at the same time, it's for the New Orleans Saints. Like, what a weird feeling this must be for everyone who owns a Teddy Bridgewater jersey. You and I just went to lunch and saw several. Yeah. Um, still there. So a lot of people who have been at training camp have had Bridgewater jerseys probably outnumbering or equal to Kirk Cousins jerseys, which really tells you something about the loyalty to him. So it's just a very, it's a very odd feeling to have him not only play for someone else, but also the team that most Vikings fans really hate. Yeah, that's the thing that I want to know going forward with Teddy, if he is the future quarterback of the Saints is, I mean... I know there's the Bears and Lions and the Packers in our division, the Packers probably being the most hated of Vikings fans, but the Saints, I, you can make a case they're, they're more hated than the Bears and the Lions. So the perception, what, what do Vikings fans think of the Saints in maybe a year or two if Teddy Bridgewater's now leading the charge and they're a 12-4 and team and a playoff consistent team? Do they put the bounty gate aside? Probably not. They probably will always linger on to that bounty gate. I, I still like to believe you lost the game for five other reasons. But, uh, but with Teddy, with the Saints, the perception with fans, I think, hopefully will change a little bit, and they won't be so sour grapes from, uh, from, one, from one NFC title game. All right, what's Teddy's stat line? Before I let you go, Declan, and we wrap up the show. For the, for the first preseason game? Yes, I think, for the first preseason game. I think game. he'll go 7 of 10, a buck 20. I think <laughs> oh, he's gonna play. Car- right. I think he's going to carve them up. Okay, he's coming out, and he's going to take yeah. advantage of Craig James and Chris Boyd and That's go right. deep. He's going to go <laughs> going all in. All right, thanks for popping in for a yeah. few minutes, Declan. Um, coming up next, Mackie and Judd with Rami. Big night for the Twins last night in the series against the Braves. A lot to talk about there along with football. I hope that they, those guys start getting into football here. Like I get I get it. Twins are great. Yeah, twins are great. Football. Yeah, Wild GM fired. Like, that's all over with football. football. Teddy Bridgewater football. All right. We'll catch you tomorrow. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. At the Home Depot, we have the tools for you to give the gift of a smarter home with savings on top brands like the Google Hub, a command center for your smart devices that raises the IQ of your entire home, or the Nest Learning Thermostat that helps you conserve energy and save on your bill. And if you don't know what to get, gift cards are a smart gift no matter what they get. So this year, gift smarter with savings on tools to make your holiday magic. The Home Depot, how doers get more done.